if we're honest, I'm sure we all wish that we could get whatever we wanted in prayer. And if we're honest, we all wish we could not just get whatever we wanted in prayer, but get it immediately. Like right there, on the spot, prayers answered. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great if you could just say a word and then, boom, you got your prayers answered? You may have felt that way this morning when you came in and noticed that there was no coffee made. You thought, man, I wish I could just say coffee and it would appear. So thank you, uh, Randy and Cindy, for jumping in there and helping out. So you may have experienced that this morning. I wish I could just magically utter a word and then, poof, I get what I want. Kind of like Billy Batson in the 70s TV show Shazam. Anybody remember that show? It was based on the DC comic book character. In the series, Billy would travel in this Winnebago with this old man named Mentor, and he would help people. And when Billy simply uttered the word Shazam, he would immediately turn into Captain Marvel. Shazam was an acronym of the first letters of the names of the six elders who trained Billy with their respective special gifts. S stood for Solomon, obviously, wisdom. We're going to look at that today. Hercules, strength, Atlas, stamina, Zeus, power, Achilles, courage, and Mercury, speed. So in a word, Shazam. Shazam was one of my favorite shows as a kid. I always wanted this power, and I still want this power when I pray. Wouldn't it be great to ask God for something, and then poof, you get it. Like that very second, Prayers answered, shazam, prayer answered. Jesus, I want this, shazam, prayer answered. Who hasn't wanted this at some point in their life? All of us, I'm sure. Who wouldn't want God to give us what we ask for on the spot? No waiting, no delay, shazam. Well, one lucky guy had this happen once in a dream. King Solomon. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3 and recall what we saw last week. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and gave Solomon a blank check and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And we saw that Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon knew that he was absolutely helpless and dependent on Yahweh, the Lord, and so Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon just told Yahweh what was on his mind in that moment. Solomon started with where he was in his life as the new king of Israel. God asked him what he wanted, and what did Solomon say? Solomon began with who he was and where he was. He began with his helplessness. Solomon knew that the task before him was too great to pull off by himself. Solomon knew that there were far too many people in Israel for him to be responsible for as the king. And so he started with his helplessness. He started with his need. And that's where you should start when you pray. That's what we saw last week. Start with where you are. Start with your helplessness. Start with your need and just tell Jesus what you lack. So Solomon asked for wisdom, and we saw that it pleased the Lord that this is what he asked for. And then Solomon got that wisdom immediately. 
Solomon got shazammed wisdom on the spot. He didn't have to wait for it. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, beginning in, we'll start, we're going to read verse 10, and hear the word of the Lord. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. Now notice the word behold here, which is used two times. When the Hebrew authors in the Old Testament use this word behold, the Hebrew word hene, when they use this word, they want to draw attention to and emphasize what is happening. And many times when they use it, they are inviting us, the reader, the audience, to enter into the scene and to see with our own eyes and to experience firsthand what is happening. And here, the Lord is drawing Solomon's attention to and emphasizing the fact that he is giving Solomon wisdom right there on the spot, no waiting, shazam. In fact, the Hebrew verb is in the perfect tense here. And here it's used with the sense that the action that is occurring at the time that this statement is being made, that it's happening in real time. And so Solomon is getting wisdom from Yahweh in real time in his dream. There's no tape delay. There's no waiting. There's no seminary. There's no post-doctoral work at a university in Egypt. Shazam, Solomon got wisdom. So Solomon went to bed exhausted from sacrificing, sacrificing 1,000 plus sheep as burnt offerings. And when he started counting sheep, he got wisdom from the Lord. He went to bed as the insecure new king of Israel, and he woke up the wisest man in the world. Before he could even get the sleep out of his eyes and wipe the drool from his face, he was the wisest man in the world. Shazam, Solomon, you are wise. So what does Solomon do right after he wakes up from his dream, after he wipes the sleep from his eyes? What does Solomon do? Does he enter a Thursday night trivia contest at a local pub to show off his wisdom? Does he audition for the game show Jeopardy with this newly given wisdom from the Lord? No, what Solomon does is grill up some tri-tip and throw a party. I knew I liked Solomon. Right after he wakes up from his dream, he eats tri-tip and throws a party for all of his friends and co-workers. He worships. He worships by eating tri-tip. Now imagine that. Solomon worships the Lord by eating tri-tip. He goes to Jerusalem. He offers sacrifices to Yahweh in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and he eats to his heart's content. And what we'll see from Solomon's offerings in verse 15 is that because of Jesus, you can now eat to your heart's content. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can now taste and see that the Lord is good. We can feast on all that he is for us. We can eat the bread of life. We can drink 
from the fountain of living water. We can eat and eat and eat and eat and drink and drink and drink and drink and be satisfied. We can eat and eat and drink and drink and eventually come up for air and say, ah, that's worship. Drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking from the fountain of living water and then saying, ah. I first heard John Piper say that when I was in seminary, fall of 2000. My best friend from seminary, as I was walking in the parking lot at at Dallas Theological Seminary, my best friend from seminary, Ross Strader, pulled up in his little Honda Accord and flew by me and slammed on the brakes and slid on the gravel parking lot and rolled down his window and he said, get in. And so I did. Because we would often drive up to Krispy Kreme donuts because they'd always give you one free donut. So in between classes, we would, so I thought we're going to Krispy Kreme. He gets in and he says, listen to this. It'll blow your mind. And he puts in a cassette for you little kids. That's a tape that plays. He put a cassette into his car And it was the message that John Piper had delivered at Dallas Seminary earlier uh, at the semester or at the end of the summer. And I had a book by John Piper on my shelf, but I'd never read it because I was in seminary and had other books I had to read. So I only knew his name. And he he hit play on this cassette, and we listened to this. And there was a, a paradigm shift in my thinking as we were driving down Greenville Avenue in Dallas, Texas, as I began to see that, oh, my goodness, I've been trying to bring buckets of labor to God in order to please Him, and I didn't realize that my own heart could be pleased just by receiving the good news of the gospel and that I could be satisfied in God. And that's what God wanted, and that that honors the Lord. And so there was a paradigm shift in me that day as I heard John Piper say, in that message that we come and we drink and drink and drink and drink and then we come up for air and we say, ah, that's worship. When we feast on Christ by faith, we can eat to our heart's content. We can find true satisfaction in Jesus, our treasure. We can be satisfied with all that God is for us in His Son, Jesus. And that's our mission here at Grace. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and to enjoy God everywhere And in everything. That's what we want to do as a church. Share the gospel with people. Ignite a passion in them. To glorify God and to enjoy Him. Wherever they go and whatever they do. Now let me ask you this morning. Do you enjoy God? Is your image of God that He's this cranky old man with a beard with his arms crossed and you just have to live your life trying to please him and hope he doesn't throw lightning bolts at you? Do you connect the word enjoy with God? Do you think those two words don't belong or do you say they belong? Do you enjoy God? Do you love being with him? Do you enjoy his word? You were made to glorify and enjoy God. And if you don't enjoy Jesus today, I pray that by the time the sermon ends, if not before, you will begin to enjoy him once again. To love him 
anew, to have your affections for Him rekindled. Maybe you're in a fog this morning. Maybe spiritually, you're just kind of in a fog. Maybe life is like a dream or a nightmare. I pray that the Holy Spirit wakes you up this morning to love and enjoy God once again and to know how much He loves you. Speaking of waking up, Solomon had a crazy dream, and as soon as he woke up, after he wiped the sleep from his eyes, he hopped into his Winnebago and hightailed it from Gibeon up to Jerusalem and down to the Ark of the Covenant, where he feasted with Yahweh and he ate to his heart's content. Solomon woke up and had a glorious breakfast of steak and eggs as he enjoyed fellowship with the Lord. I mean, think about that eating steak. At church, eating steak as an act of worship. Yep. That's how they did it in the Old Testament. Eating steak was one way that they worshiped the Lord at church in the Old Testament. Eating steak was one way that they worshiped Yahweh at church in the Old Testament. And suddenly, the Old Testament becomes very appealing. Sometimes I've heard Christians say that they are so glad they don't live under the Old Covenant because of all the seemingly boring and antiquated laws. To that, I say, really? You could eat tri-tip at church and call it worship. How is that a bad thing? Eating tri-tip with Jesus? Sign me up! Eating steak and being told that my sins are forgiven and that God's not mad at me? Sign me up. And that's exactly what Solomon did once he got the sleep out of his eyes. Look again at verse, look now at verse 15. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Recall what we saw last week, that Solomon had been busy sacrificing 1,000 plus sheep all day and then he fell asleep and he's counting sheep. And as soon as Solomon woke up from this dream where the Lord gave him wisdom, he hopped in his Winnebago and went straight to Jerusalem to the ark of the covenant. And he sacrificed even more burnt offerings there. If you remember from last time, the burnt offering was consumed and the whole animal was burnt up entirely on the altar. All of the animal was burned up. Everything belonged to the Lord in the burnt offering. And the burnt offering meant that you as the worshiper, as the sinful worshiper, you were accepted by God. So when the animal was completely burned up on the altar, God was telling you that you were forgiven of your sins, all of your sins. You were righteous and that you were loved by him and that you were accepted by him. And you could smell that you were forgiven. How great is that? You could know that you were forgiven of your sins by smelling steak on the altar. You could actually smell that you were forgiven. As the animal was being burned up on the altar, you could smell that you were accepted by a holy God, even though you were a sinner. But we also saw that God didn't just accept the worshiper and accept the offering. We saw that burnt offerings actually gave God pleasure. 
We read about this in Leviticus chapter 1. Three times it says that the burnt offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The burnt offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And these were the sacrifices that Solomon once again is offering to Yahweh immediately after he gets wisdom in that dream from him. And by doing so, Solomon was saying, by offering more burnt offerings, he was saying, I am completely sinful, and I come to you, Lord, by the blood of another. You have total claim on my life, and I am wholeheartedly yours, Yahweh. And so Solomon is once again offering burnt offerings, this time before the Ark of the Covenant. But now he's also offering peace offerings as well. What was the peace offering? Peace offering could be offered on several occasions according to Leviticus chapter 7. If you wanted to give thanks to the Lord for something that he had done for you, maybe you've been praying about something and he answered your prayer and you wanted to give thanks for something that Yahweh had done for you, you would offer a peace offering. Or if you wanted to fulfill a vow that you had made to the Lord, you would offer the peace offering. Or if you just simply wanted to come and give thanks to the Lord and say, Oh, Yahweh, you've been so kind to me. I want to offer this peace offering. And Leviticus chapter 3 tells us in detail about the peace offering, how the worshiper would take an animal from the herd or from the flock and offer it to God. But the peace offering was not offered in order to have peace with God. It was offered to celebrate that one was already at peace with God. It was offered to celebrate that all was well between the worshiper and God. It was a celebration that the sinner was at peace with a holy God. It was true communion or true fellowship with the Lord, and it foreshadowed the Lord's Supper or communion that we celebrate today. And when a worshiper offered a peace offering like Solomon does here, that worshiper actually ate a meal in the presence of the Lord. The worshiper ate steak or tri-tip or lamb in the presence of the Lord with the other worshipers that were present, thus celebrating the peace that existed between sinner and God. The worshiper would bring a lamb or a cow and the same ritual was repeated as with the burnt offering. The animal would be slaughtered, the blood would be thrown on the corners of the altar, but this time, unlike the burnt offering where the whole animal was burned up, this time only the fat and only the kidneys and only the insides of the animal and the liver would be burned up on the altar. The fat was believed to be the best part of the animal. So it was given to the Lord and was burned up. And the fat, by giving the fat, it signified that the worshiper was giving his best to God. That the worshiper was surrendering his will to God. The kidneys and the other internal organs represented the seat of emotions we, we like to refer to the heart, but in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word for heart that gets translated as heart into English is the kidneys. The kidneys. You love the Lord your God with all your kidneys in the Old Covenant. The kidneys and the other internal organs represented the seat of emotions. And so by giving these inner parts of the animal to the Lord, the, the worshiper was surrendering their deepest emotions and affections. The worshiper was surrendering himself to his God. 
And then the right shoulder and the right thigh of the animal was given to the priest as payment for their service and their ministry at the tabernacle because that was their full-time job. And then the rest of the animal was cooked on the spot, on the altar, on the grill, if you will, and then given back to the worshiper to eat right then and right there. And so the worshiper actually ate a meal in the presence of the Lord. They ate steak, tri-tip, and lamb in the presence of the Lord. And people think the Old Testament is boring? Are you kidding me? You could go to church and eat tri-tip and call it worship. I mean, sign me up. You could have a lamb shank in your hand, nibbling on it, while you raised your hands in worship to Yahweh. And you were saying, Jesus, you were better than eating lamb. Sign me up. Eating steak in the middle of a church service. Yes, please. Pass the A1 steak sauce. Pass the Heinz 57. I mean, can you imagine someone asking you back then about how church was? Hey, how was church today? And you replied, the music was great. We sang that new song. The sermon was okay, I guess. The preacher always goes on and on about some sci-fi show that he loves. But the tri-tip this week, wow. Wow, that new priest really knows how to season it. It was hard to focus during the sermon because the smell coming from the altar was crazy good. It was a good day. We ate steak in the Lord's presence and we were reminded that our sins are forgiven. I have peace with the Holy God. So yeah, church was good today. That's the peace offering. That's what Solomon is offering here in verse 15. Eating tri-tip in the Lord's presence with friends and family, celebrating the fact that you, a wretched sinner, have peace with a holy God. Let me repeat that. Eating tri-tip in the Lord's presence with friends and family, celebrating the fact that you, a wretched sinner, have peace with a holy God. That's the peace offering eating to your heart's content. So what kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? Not one that we would create. What kind of God are we dealing with? One that says, here's how you worship me. Substitutionary atonement. Sins forgiven. Eating tri-tip to your heart's content. Wow. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says this, the worshiper could once again eat to their heart's content in the presence of God as Adam and Eve had been invited to do in their Eden. The peace offering was the only sacrifice the worshipers could eat, but they could eat. Eating in normal life was a sign of fellowship, but eating with God, so to speak, was truly amazing fellowship. And that's exactly what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate communion. It's a celebration, not a funeral. Even though the pastor is usually dressed in black. When we celebrate communion, please understand that it is a time of celebration that God in Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins. This is seen in the peace offering. The peace offering was a joyous occasion, not a funeral. 
And too many Christians have been taught that communion should be a funeral, a dark, gloomy moment. No, it should be a time of joy. Now, yes, we acknowledge our sin and repent. Of course. But we should rejoice that God loves and forgives us and that all is well between us and that he invites us into his presence both now and for eternity. We should confess We should confess sin, but then we celebrate. The purpose of confessing our sins is not to make us miserable by simply reminding us what great sinners we are. It's to remind us of what a great Savior we have. The purpose of confessing our sins is not to make us miserable by simply reminding us of what terrible sinners we are. It's to remind us of what a great Savior we have. Therefore, communion, the Lord's Supper, should not be like a funeral service. We are celebrating a risen Savior when we celebrate communion. We don't come to his funeral. We don't just celebrate his death. We don't just celebrate his funeral as if it ends there. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus died and they had a funeral for him and then buried him. We don't simply celebrate his funeral, don't simply celebrate his death. We celebrate a risen Savior. And so communion, the Lord's Supper, should not be like a funeral. As R. Scott Clark says, Christians have been frequently tempted to reduce the Lord's Supper to merely a memorial. To be sure, all Christians confess a memorial aspect to the supper. Our Lord did say, do this in remembrance of me. In the Heidelberg Catechism, as in the Belgic Confession, however, the Reformed churches confess that the supper, though a memorial, is more than that. It is also a supper, a meal. We are being fed. By what or by whom? Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 is that the supper is sacred. It is holy. It is a blessing for believers and places unbelievers in jeopardy. Because in it we are being fed through the mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit with the true body and blood of Christ. It is not a funeral, but a feast. The supper is a means of grace wherein the Holy Spirit lifts believers to commune with Christ and to be fed by his true body and blood. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit lifts us up, if you will, to heaven to commune with Jesus. And Jesus says to us in that moment, eat to your heart's content. Eat and be satisfied with all that God is for you in his son, Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Celebrate that all is well between you and God. And you can do that right now. We're not even having the Lord's Supper today. But you can do that right now. You don't even have to wait until this sermon is over. You can feast on Jesus right now as you feel your heart being pulled to him in love once again. As you hear about his great love for you, as you feel his love moving out to you right now, you might be so inclined to give him your heart, to give him your kidney to renew your first love, to express your deep gratitude for what he has done for you on the cross. His love endures forever. I just read it this morning. 
think I've got time to add this. Bruce Waltke said that God's love, his covenant, uh, goes to a thousand generations. And he said, if you count back to Jesus, you've got about 80 generations, about 80 grandfathers. If you count back to Moses, you've got about 125, 125 generations. So we're about a tenth of the way there to the thousand generations. His point and the point of the passage is that God's love is endless. It's endless. There's no end in sight. And that's what we see at the cross. And that love, if it's pulling your heart this morning, pulling your kidney, if you will, you can come back to Jesus even right now as your affections are stirred. The Old Testament worshiper gave all of their heart by offering up the fat and the kidneys and the other internal organs of the animal. And that's what the fat and the kidneys and the internal organs represented. It was the heart. It was the emotions. So you don't have to offer your kidney to Jesus this morning, but you could offer your heart even right now as you hear about his great love and sacrifice for you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. He's calling out to you even now, not just at the end of the sermon like some pastors do. He's calling to you right now. Repent of your sin and rebellion. To repent simply means to change your mind. Change your mind about God. Change your mind about you and how you have been living in rebellion against him. Confess your sin and be open about it and just fess up that at your core, you really just love you. And you've been living for you and not for God and not for his glory. And then trust what Jesus has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection, that that's enough to make you right with God. You can come to Jesus today. And you can even do that right now in the middle of the sermon. Just call out to Jesus to save you. And maybe you're already a Christian and your heart is being drawn once again to Jesus as you hear the good news of the gospel that all is well between you and God. Renew and rekindle your first love right now. Rekindle those affections that you once had. You can do that even in the middle of a sermon. You just call out to your Savior and renew your love. You can come to Jesus today. And so the peace offering meant that all was well between the worshiper and the Lord. And that's what Solomon's name means. Solomon's name comes from the word shalom, peace, shalom. So as Solomon or Shalomo offered a peace or shalom offering, he was reminded once again that he had peace with God. Shazam, shalom. And since all was well between Solomon and the Lord, guess what Solomon did next? Solomon threw a big party for all his servants. How did Solomon respond to being made right with God? He threw a party. As verse 15 says, Solomon made a feast for all his servants. Solomon threw a big party where as host, he covered everything. He picked up the check. Food and drinks were on him. Shazam. And so if you want some application from this sermon, you might want to throw a party for all your friends and family one day, one day and say, when they ask you, why are you having this party? You just say, because God loves me and forgives me of my sins. Let's celebrate that. You do that today. Take someone out to lunch and say, I'm going to buy your lunch. Why? Because God's not mad at me anymore. Throw a party next week and invite all your friends and family and coworkers and say, what's the occasion? Say, just tell them, God's not mad at me anymore because of Jesus, so let's celebrate. So what is this chapter saying to us? 
And what is it saying to the original audience? Remember, the original audience were slaves in exile in Babylon. They ended up being deported out of Israel. They were slaves in a land not their own in Babylon. And remember, the books of 1 and 2 Kings were written to these exiles. So how did they hear this story in this whole chapter, chapter 3 of 1 Kings? And what hope did this chapter and this incident in Solomon's life offer them in exile? And what hope does it offer us? Well, for the original audience, they were being reminded that even though they messed up their lives seriously and they ended up in exile, they too still had access to God's mercy and his wisdom. They too could experience and be reminded of being at peace with God. They too could offer their hearts and kidneys once again to Yahweh. They too could renew their first love. Mercy was available to them. And wisdom too. Now, were there consequences to their sin? Of course. There's always consequences to sin. And these exiles were living it. But they still had access to the mercy and wisdom of the Lord to navigate through their mess, through the mess that they had caused because of their rebellion and sin. And though they were in exile, Yahweh was still pursuing the people that he loved. As Ian Duguid says, let us bring this closer to home. For Israel is not the only one who has been gloriously loved by God and then proved spectacularly unfaithful. We have turned our backs on the God who gave us life and breath, choosing to pursue our idols instead. But the Lord does the same thing with us that he did with Old Testament Israel. He pursues us out in the wilderness of our own making, where we end up cold, naked, isolated, and alone, drowning in shame, abandoned by the very things in which we put our trust. There, he calls us to come back to him. He wants you to know that even though, even while your heart has been cold and hard toward him, His heart has remained dizzyingly, dazzlingly set on you. While you have been saying, wow, you are beautiful, to all kinds of ugly substitutes, he still looks at you and says, wow, you are beautiful. You are a lily among the thorns. You are one of a kind, and I still love you. Even while you are running away, his loving heart still pursues you wherever you go. What kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? That kind of God. The one who pursues. When God's people run away, his loving heart still pursues them wherever they go. The books of 1 and 2 Kings were written to convince those in exile that the Lord was alive and well and that despite their circumstances, he was still pursuing them in love. It was a real invitation from Yahweh to come home. And it was meant to spark hope in God's people. Though in exile, they could come and feast on the Lord's kindness again, again, and again, and have peace. And that same invitation is given to us. The world, of course, scratches its head that God would descend in human flesh and die in our place for our sins. But that is the wisdom of God, that God himself would make a way for sinners to be with him forever, that his loving heart pursues us wherever we go. 
And so to all who are running away from God this morning, maybe you're running away from God this morning and you know it. You feel it. Man, he's talking to you today. To all who are running away from God this morning and to all who need peace and to all who are running on empty this morning, just tired, just exhausted, who have been feeding on the junk food of this world, or you've been rummaging for scraps, trying to find satisfaction, or you've totally made a mess of your life and you're having to deal with the consequences, or maybe you're here and you're simply pretending that you're fine and you know deep down inside you're not okay. To you, Jesus says simply, come. Come to the gospel feast and eat and drink and be merry and be satisfied. Come and eat to your heart's content. Feast on the gospel this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to the fountain this morning and drink and drink and drink and drink. And that's not selfish. And drink and drink and drink. And then come up for air and just say, ah, that's worship. That glorifies Jesus. That's how you enjoy Jesus. You want to glorify God today? That's how you glorify God. That's what you were made for, eternal joy, pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. So will you come today? Shazam, you can be forgiven. Shazam, you can be restored this morning. Shazam, you can come to Jesus right now. Shazam, he welcomes you with open arms. God wants us to enjoy sweet fellowship with him through his word, through prayer, through the Lord's Supper and baptism, through corporate worship on the Sabbath, and through the Sabbath day as we set aside time to rest and to enjoy him. So come, friends. Let's close with something Rondi Lauterbach says in her book, Hungry, Learning to Feed Your Soul with Christ. She says this, God's invitation comes to us through the prophet Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55, 1. God is insistent, almost pushy. Come, 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 come. Four times we are invited. He must really mean it. Apparently there's no cover charge either which is good because it's the end of the month and I'm out of money. It sounds like he's got both the food and drink covered. Maybe I should offer to bring something. But this is not a potluck. It's a feast put on by the Lord himself. He has spread his table and now he invites us to come and eat. This is the free invitation of the gospel. Coming right on the heels of a prophecy about the suffering servant who will atone for our sins. It's gospel. Do you hear the good news in it? God is saying, come. This meal is free because I've already paid. It's ready because I've already done all the work. You don't need to bring anything. Just come and eat. This is the come to Jesus invitation offered freely to all. It's an invitation to believe the gospel, not just for the first time, but for every day after. It's an invitation to hear his words and feed our souls. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Isaiah 55, 2. The guest list for this feast is unbelievably long, and you 
and I are on it. God is insistent, almost pushy. Come, 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 and eat to your heart's content. Come today and enjoy your forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you really mean it. You really mean it. You want us to come, not bringing buckets and buckets of our labor, as if that is what we need. But instead, you say, come and drink bucket, buckets full of my love and mercy and grace. Come up for air and say, ah, that's what you want of us, Lord. I pray that we do that by the power of your spirit this morning, that we would drink deeply of your goodness. Father, you are a good, good father. May we believe that and run into your arms this morning and enjoy you. Would you help us to do that, we pray, for your glory, for our joy and our happiness. In Jesus' name, amen.